welcome to EM Toxcast. Uh, as uh, has been the uh, past, I've been, I'm joined by our Dr. Ernie Lieber, our program director, and Dr. Ed Ramoska, our former program director. What do they call a gaggle of program directors or a flock of program directors? I don't, I don't know. That's a good a question. A cord of program directors. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what they call a collection of toxicologists? I don't know. A bezoar of toxicologists. A bezoar. <laughs> that, that would be yeah. good. That would be good. <laughs> we have to come up for one of those for when you get multiple program and former program directors <laughs> in the same room together. We have plenty of them here. I know. Yeah, got, we do, actually, when you we've think about it. We do. Uh, We've got Sharon. Sharon. And Ralph used to be an assistant yes, associate Yes, he was an APD. Director. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, gosh. We, we, we probably have a, a cord, cord of, of program, program directors. directors. Yes. <laughs> All right, great. Well, today we're doing our flip classroom for uh, to, uh, Thursdays. Um, and we're going to go kind of quickly. We don't want to uh, drag them out because we know that our listeners out there are putting the setting the treadmill to 30 minutes and putting their headphones in. <laughs> there you go. And we got to get this done. So um, who's got the first article? Uh, I guess I'll... <laughs> Ernie and I had yeah. this discussion. I think he decided that I was going to yeah. uh, intro them all. Okay, okay. go ahead. You so, intro them all. all so, right. so the first one is, uh, why do people choose, choose emergency and urgent care services? Um, and this was in academic emergency medicine just relatively recently, September 2017, it was by Costa et al. from the University of Sheffield and Northampton General Hospital in the UK. So what they wanted to do was review the literature and identify the factors behind why patients make decisions to access urgent or emergency care. They used what they called a rapid review, which is sort of a little different than a systematic review that we're all used to. Mm. I'm not sure exactly what the difference is, but they say that they simplified and omitted things I because see. they didn't have a whole lot of time because the British government, I guess, told them, you got six months to come up with a report. And so they were like, <laughs> okay, so we're, we're going to do this quick. Cochrane Light. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there you go, Cochrane Light. So, so they searched a bunch of databases, five databases, Medline, including the Cochrane Library and the Web of Science and two others. And they came up with 38 different studies gotcha. from the US, UK, Europe, Australia, and Canada. Um, they said they did a quality assurance assessment and the quality of the articles were high and over three quarters of the articles were set in the ED. And they, the results they came up with are interesting. They basically came up with six themes mm. um, of why people come into the ER. And I'm just going to read them off, and then we can start to uh, okay. talk about them. So the first was confidence in primary care and access to care appointments. Um, the second was perceived urgency, anxiety, and the value of reassurance from emergency-based services. Um, the third was views of family, friends, and healthcare professionals. The fourth was convenience. The fifth was individual patient factors. And then the sixth was perceived need for EMS or hospital care treatment or investigations. Mm. So there are a lot of different things under those themes that they came up with. And some of them are really interesting to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I, uh, this is one of the articles I picked. We kind of <coughs> took two from Ed, two from me. I thought it was interesting, I think, just uh, throughout the course of the day in the ED, you always hear, and I know I say it myself sometimes, you know, oh, why is this patient here today? Why did this patient come to the ER? doesn't seem like an emergency to me. Maybe. Can you believe this? Yeah, but I think this just kind of reminds us of, you know, what some of these, uh, you know, these underlying reasons are. What are some of the thought processes 
behind why people show up sometimes. And uh, there are just very practical reasons, really, when you kind of look through that list. Um, so that's kind of why I thought this would be interesting and a good discussion for our residents to have. Yeah, I think that um, uh, the perception is that folks who are coming to the emergency department either don't access primary care or try to access primary care or what have you. But I did a study, uh, a very pointy-head mathematical modeling study that basically said that ED overcrowding, uh, all the patients that are coming to the ED, is a direct result of inability to access primary care and a patient's desire to improve their personal best chances for getting a good outcome, right? So you sit there and you say, you call your primary care physician and find out that uh, you don't have an appointment for a week for your strep throat, or your experience shows that you won't get an appointment for your week, and you just uh, you just head to the ED because you know that's your best chance of... Uh, and sometimes you get lucky and the line is short, and sometimes, sometimes it's not. Dave Wagner has a saying, which is great, and uh, it says that emergency medicine was invented by patients. You yes. Know, and that's the one thing I think that you have to keep in mind when you're ED doc is that without that, that, that wish, that desire to have somebody in the ED 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365, um, we wouldn't need the specialty, right? Everybody right. could just, you know, wait till the cardiologist decides they're going to open up their office and go there with their chest pain, I suppose. And that sort of sums up a bunch of the sub-factors under each of these major themes, right? Because they talk about convenience, like, right. you know, PCPs maybe are open from nine to five, maybe now they have a little bit of after hours care, but we're open, as you said, 24 7, 365. Right. Maybe they feel like, well, I might need an x ray or I might need a lab test or I need a CAT scan and I can't get that at my doctor's office, so I might as well come to the ER. Maybe they think it's just beyond the scope of their PCP. Exactly. And they think that, oh, well, there's consultants at the hospitals. I can get a yeah. surgeon or a cardiologist or whatever. So, yeah, there's lots of reasons that. Um, yeah. One of the reasons I like to think people come is, you know, you can think. Well, why do you go to your favorite restaurant over and over again? Because it's good and you, and you <laughs> like it and the food is good. So why do you come to the ER? Because your service is good. The doctors are, yep. are you know, treat you treat you well. Highly and, trained. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that uh, it, it's, it's, it, it's patient experience that dictates what their decisions are all about. And if they had gotten into a, somebody else's office, uh, for an emergency situation, they probably would have tried. By the way, if you ask, I tried this one time for over a couple of shifts. I say, did you call your primary care? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I called them. They, they told me to come to the ER, right? You call the office and they're like, if you have an emergency, put down the phone and dial 911. <laughs> right. yeah. People follow that to the letter. <laughs> right. No, exactly. <laughs> what What isn't an emergency nowadays? Everything is. Or you get the sore throat. You know, I might have strep. I need antibiotics. Well, that's, I, that's, also, know, have, yeah. that's yeah. also one of the interesting things, right, is that People always look at intermittently. They go, oh, uh, there's lots of non-emergencies in the ER. And then they retrospectively look at all these patients and go, oh, they didn't need to be here. They didn't need to be here. But in the patient's mind, if they had chest pain and they were feeling bad and their father died of a heart attack, yeah, they sure. want to come to the ER. Yeah, we find out it's only indigestion or anxiety or whatever. But for them, it was an emergency. And, right. right yeah. And, and then we yell at them when they don't come in with their chest pain or their stroke that they waited too long. Right, so, right. Uh, yes, it's we just – ASAP has it right. If the yes. patient thinks it's an emergency, it's an emergency. They should right. come in, and we should just reassure them if that's right. what it needs. Right, exactly. 
put it in a little perspective. It, it takes a little while, although I did work one time. I was moonlighting for quite a while in a community hospital. I worked with a doc who literally would say every time he picked up the chart, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Everything was, unless it was like a cardiac arrest, he thought it needed some sort of like, you know, sort of chastising, like, what are you doing here for this? It's only cellulitis. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. So uh, next article. So the next one is a very common complaint that we deal with in our ER not. Um, the association of ED treatment for mm -hmm. hyperglycemia with glucose reduction and emergency department length of stay. This was by Driver et al. from um, Hennepin County Medical Center. It was, again, just recently published in December of 2017 in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. What they wanted to do was determine the magnitude of the association between two glucose-lowering therapies and the actual glucose reduction and the ED length of stay. So they did a chart review at Hennepin. So this is a retrospective observational studies. You had to be 18 years or older. You had to have a blood sugar greater than 400. They did it over a two-year period back in 2010 to 2011. Um, they excluded people who had type 1 diabetes. So if you spe specifically said that on the chart, they excluded you. Or if you had hypoglycemia. Otherwise, anybody with an elevated sugar, they took. And they, again, they looked at two main things, glucose reduction and ED length of stay. They, had, they, they wound up analyzing 566 encounters with 422 unique patients. Um, and it, the patients are what you expect. They were an average of 48 years old. They were almost 60% male. Their uh, arrival glucoses were like 473. Mm -hmm. About 80% of them received a median of two liters of fluids and about 70% received 10 units of sub-Q insulin. And according to their model, very interesting, uh, you know, because it doesn't seem to jive with your personal experience, I think. Right. A liter of IV fluids was associated with a mean glucose reduction of 27 milligrams per deciliter, and it increased length of stay by 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Whereas 10 units of insulin was associated with a mean glucose reduction of 33 milligrams per deciliter and no change in length of, uh, of, length of stay. Mm -hmm. And although that when you look at their scatter plots of their data, you'll notice that the glucose reduction is all over the map. Yes, it it's, is. It's high. I'm it's looking low, at it now, in, and it's just... It's, it's, it's all over the place. Yeah. But it's interesting that this is what their model came up with, that it doesn't look like we're doing a heck of a lot here. Well, the other thing that I drew from this is that uh, maybe the issue is that the glucose and the measurement of it and the reduction of it is not the right endpoint for who needs fluids and who needs you know, insulin or who would benefit from one or the other. Uh, that, that's, that's what I took away, is that we are using this, the sugar, uh, but um, uh, that seems to be a little sticky <laughs> in terms of... Uh, <laughs> oh, that was bad. <laughs> I tried. Come on. That, that was bad. Help me out. Help me out. <laughs> Uh, you know, in terms of trying to uh, use that as a, uh, a good marker for uh, improvement. I mean, because certainly we know some patients come in and they are dry as a bone, right? You know, you're filling them two, three liters and they're still, they still haven't urinated. Whereas others, uh, that sugar is up there uh, and uh, it seems to drop very quickly. Uh, and, the, you know, there seems to be, you know, something magic about one liter for that person. I wonder personally if it has more to do with the fact that folks uh, get off the subway, uh, finish the bag of Doritos, go to triage, get their glucose checked when it's 
550. Right. <laughs> they may. You know, uh, so that we don't account for that part either. Well, also what you point up sort of points up something else that we can just talk about yeah. in this article and another one, which is the difference between patient-oriented outcomes and physiologic outcomes. Right. I mean, the patient came in and you noticed their bl blood sugar was high, but it has nothing to do with why they're here, and we sort of feel obliged to lower it, and so we're lowering a number for them. But does that make them, as you said, make them feel any better? Right. Maybe, there are some people, yeah, who need fluids, but maybe some who don't, as versus just fixing a number. Now, granted, there are some people who come in and say, my blood glucose is high, I've been checking it, and they, right. they, and they want yeah. it lowered. Yeah. So for them, that's a patient-oriented outcome. Yeah. But yeah. In general, sometimes I think we're fixing ourselves rather than fixing the patients. Right. Yeah, that's true. I, I think yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it has to be kind of an individualized approach. Certain patients come in and they, you know, are very, you know, like their glucose controlled very closely, and for them you can help them. And other people, you know, really don't control their glucose that well. We do see them, don't we? Sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, so I think the sweet spot is to figure out. Uh oh. Who, nice. Oh. Nice. Well played. <laughs> to figure out, you know. Who who you you need to really uh, to to fix and, and how much for each person? Yeah. So do you have a magic number where you're done the fluids your your, your sugar is corrected you can go home now? Yeah, I, I really don't. the 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 ones that really get me though are you know we get a lot of patients that come from uh, the police station right they get a screen right. in the police station and they won't take them back until the sugar is below two hundred. Uh, right. The, sometimes it's like oh below three is probably okay below two is what they want. It's just so random, and that's when you end up treating this number. And I really, I, I, I hate getting into and treating. I, those I worry numbers. about those patients yeah. that we give too much fluids and insulin to, right. and then all right, you're 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 198. Go back, and they right. might go back to the police station, and then become hypoglycemic, yeah. and yeah. you know right. because they don't, they don't have access to food, or right? Whatnot. And they're sitting in a cell, and nobody's watching them, and yeah. That, that, that could yeah. be problematic then. Now, what's your approach vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the, all right, enough of the fluid, let's switch to insulin? I actually use insulin really early, I think, compared to a lot of people in this ER. Mm. I know because there's a lot of people who, I with the residents all the time, it's like, oh, I've given this guy two liters of fluids. It's like, give him some insulin too. Yeah. As long as they're not, you know, if they're obviously in DKA, you have other issues to worry about with mm -hmm. the potassium and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But if they're just their blood sugar's high and, you know, they're not coo-smalling and, mm -hmm. you know, the urine dip looks okay or whatever, you know, just give them some insulin with the fluids. It'll knock this thing down quicker and you can get them out of the ER. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's right. I think that was one of the points they were trying to make was that, you know, a liter of fluid is 45 more minutes in the emergency department. So if you can, you know, if your length of stay is important to you and, you know, people are following that and tracking that, then maybe the way to decrease that length of stay is, you know, fluids and a little bit of insulin right up front. Um, I don't think you have to worry, you know, worry too much about dropping them too fast in, you know, in certain populations. But for the most part, I think get them down a little quickly, get them out of the ER, and, uh, you know, they're going to do okay. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you, Ernie. I don't think one or the other is the right approach. I think um, – a judicious use of both is probably the way to go. Probably not. I certainly do that. If I know a patient's on an established insulin regimen and they come in, they look a little dry and their sugar's high. I'm hitting them with the fluid, but then I'll just also start what they're established, re, re, restart their established regimen, maybe just a regular part of it, whatever part of it is the uh, fast acting to be on the safe side and then add the long acting before they hit the road and have a turkey sandwich. <laughs> sandwich. Well, that's that's the other interesting thing <laughs> that they that they mention in this 
is that there's probably a lot of variability in p terms of what people are eating and drinking maybe in the ER. I can remember like a classic case of a guy who was in the ER for like something like 12 hours and it, we, they kept trying to lower his blood sugar. And finally, like I went in the room and searched the guy and he's got, you know, a bag full of candy in his pocket that he's intermittently popping, and that's why his sugar's right. never coming down. It's like you walked in there, <laughs> aha! <laughs> you know, it's like so. Like what, you're what a cheat. <laughs> what, what they're doing also sometimes affects, yeah. it. as you said, they they may they probably just had the bag of Doritos before oh, they I got know. triage. I know it for a right. fact. Right. You know, they come in and they're not feeling well, so they're trying some food, and then you know the the sugar gets done right before yeah. they arrive. So you will get uh, elevated blood pressures from the primary care office, and you'll get elevated sugars from the primary care office. But you notice no endocrinologist ever sends somebody to the ER and says, his sugar's too high. I need to, you know what I mean? Uh, DKA, though, if they're DKA, they'll send them. But even the endocrinologists are like, ah, the number, just give them more insulin or yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, so we're just, um, we're going to have to figure that one out. We're just doing stuff, and we're not 100% sure why. <laughs> right. <laughs> Myth-busting in emergency medicine. All right. We used to have a saying at Bellevue, and that is there is no lower triage level than just drunk. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. That's the intro <laughs> to our next article. <laughs> yeah, the next article is unsuspected critical illness among emergency department patients presenting for acute alcohol intoxication. This is by Klein et al. on the Annals of Emergency Medicine. This is really recent. This was March of 2018. And again, from Hennepin County. Their objective was to determine the incidence of the use of critical care resources among patients who presented their ED for acute intoxication. And again, this was a retrospective observational study. Just as an aside, I get the feeling that they recently got an um, electronic medical record, and somebody got the idea that I can start surfing the electronic oh, medical record nice. retrospectively for all these different patients. I mean, I was I, I got I, more obsessed with the notion of a 16-bed dedicated intox unit. That was going to be that was going to be my next thing. Yes, like, I mean they have a hundred thousand circle of volume. Hell. Yeah, they have a hundred thousand visit ED, but they get more than seven thousand visits per year of yeah. intoxication. So they have a dedicated intoxication unit. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know about being, like, assigned back there. I, yeah. yeah. It would be yeah. like... Come in with your lunch bag. Where are you headed to, like, that? <laughs> yeah. in, intox. You could probably get intoxicated just from just, the fumes yeah, coming <laughs> off them. I mean... Yeah, a lot of snoring there. But in any case, they, they looked at people who were 18 years or older who either had an altered mental status or were classified as intoxication, and they had to have a breath alcohol level greater than zero. Mm. And... If you got back there, so it sounds like you come into the ER, and if they think you're sick and drunk, they keep you in the main ER. If they think you're just drunk, as you right. would say, they send you back to the intox unit. And then when somebody evaluates them, if they say, nah, nah, we got to move this guy. So if they moved him within 10 minutes, they said, okay, that's the guy who was just mistriaged, and we're going to take him out. So they looked at these people who were just, yeah, we're putting you in the intox unit, and we're just going to sober you up. Mm -hmm. And they defined... Um, their critical care cohort as anybody who they had to use critical care resources in. So if you were admitted to the ICU or even if you just had to be moved to a main ED bed after that initial 10 minutes because of something that went wrong, they, um, they, they considered that their critical care cohort. So they wound up with a uh, study cohort of over 31,000 uh, encounters. Um, there were over 11,000 unique patients. Um, 
the, interesting, the median number of visits was one, and the range was one to 227 visits. And I, I know we have at least <laughs> somebody around here who we could probably find. Adopted sons and daughters yes, of the hospital. 227 visits over yes. a five-year period. That's when you offer them a job. <laughs> <laughs> so median age was 38. They were 71% male. Most of them came, almost 90% came via EMS or the police. And the median blood alcohol level was like 234. Um, their average length of stay was 478 minutes. So for those of you not good at math, that's just a little over seven and a half hours they were in the ER, which sort of comports with our uh, experience here, I think. Mm -hmm. And they had, their critical care cohort was 325 people, which was 1% of the study population, which I thought was interesting. So, you know, this seems like a, 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 a low volume kind of thing, although mm -hmm. obviously these are high-risk patients if they do decompensate, but there's not a lot of them. 80% um, of them got admitted to the ICU. The most common diagnoses on them was... Well, 80% of the 1%, right? 80% of the 1%, <laughs> correct. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Right. The most common diagnoses were um, hypoxic respiratory failure, alcohol withdrawal, agitation, or sepsis and infection. Um, they had to intubate like 60% of the people. They actually had two people who died, both from CVAs, and they had, um, what was it, three other people who had cardiac arrests. Right. Mm -hmm. All of them had ROSC and eventually were discharged neurologically intact. Although the one was discharged to a long-term care right. unit, so I wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. mm, Wernicke's probably. <laughs> yeah, w whatever it was. But uh, they came up with some variables that were associated with an increased risk of um, using critical care resources. And they were hypoglycemia, fever, hypothermia, hypotension, hypoxia, if you had to use parenteral sedation, if there was tachycardia. Interestingly, the alcohol level and the frequent user um, was not associated with increased critical care use. Mm, interesting. Yeah, to me, uh, I, the, my takeaway was when I saw that only 1% of this particular unit uh, really was decompensating in any way, any way, shape, or form, I thought... That's very interesting because that reinforces the practice that, you know, just drunk is, is you just know, drunk. just drunk, uh, except when it's not, and then it can be really bad. What I was trying to sort out is whether this article would give us a sense of when these patients uh, started to uh, look bad. And to me, what was fascinating was that they either are uh, deteriorating in the beginning or towards the end. In other words, they're either going into withdrawal or they're, you know, right off the bat, they're hypoxic and have uh, alterations. And that gives me an idea when we have, uh, you know, an intox patient in one of those back rooms, like the annex or what have you, uh, that we, uh, you know, when to check on that patient. Like, probably should check on it, like, within about 30 minutes of arrival. And then once you've got a sense that they're on a steady course, then double back and check on them again. At the end of your shift yeah, kind of thing. And knowing that um, it's about 25 milligrams per deciliter an hour, you know, so about uh, four hours, you're going to drop about 100 in your alcohol level. That's when you'll start seeing the folks maybe getting to withdrawal and whatnot. So yeah. I was hoping I was going to get something more from this article because, like, the, what they came up with was the variables associated with the critical care are the things you would expect, right? I mean, so if they have a fever, if they're cold, if they're hypotensive, if they're tachycardic, if they're hypoxic, I mean... Yeah, it's basically just vital sign-based, or your vital signs, right. plus a blood glucose, and plus if they receive medication. Right, they receive and, medication and, and for if they're agitated enough, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's nothing 
nothing earth shattering, right. but right. but it certainly reassures you that. Yeah. So I did. I liked the group that they looked at, and that they were supposed to be very low risk, you know, patients right. who you just looked at and said, exactly. "Oh, there's nothing wrong with this patient." Um, and just think about the numbers. You know, one percent. We probably get maybe a hundred of these every two weeks. Yeah, two to three sure. weeks. So there's probably yeah. one of those every two weeks that is going to decompensate that we mm -hmm. didn't expect. So. You know, over the course of a year, it's a fairly, you know, it could be a significant number of patients. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got their story, so, right? I yeah. thought he was yeah. just drunk and uh, went back and checked on them, and the right pupil was blown. Oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> right. uh, well, I, so here's a question for you. Uh, titling articles, unsuspected critical illness among emergency department patients, right? So it made me think that there was going to be some great revelation and I felt like, no, these are all suspected. I've suspected all of these. Uh, right, right. So my, I think they should retitle the article, Just Drunk is 99% of the time. <laughs> just it's drunk. just drunk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Except for the 1% of the time, in which right. case, it's critical. Right. It, it's well, critical. You're, right. You're looking for the needle in the haystack. Yeah. Right. Yes, comes, that's exactly right. Is right. what it comes down to. Very well said. All right. Well, last but not least is that, uh, that uh, evergreen uh, problem, balanced crystalloids versus saline. Uh, I, I have heard this argument go back and forth for 30 years in, in medicine, uh, and uh, it it's never settles. It comes and goes, and I think that uh, depending upon your training, your mentors, what institution you started at, where you're practicing, uh, it determines a lot of things. But everybody should know what the effect of the crystalloid uh, versus saline that they are using. So... Take it away. All right. So I think Ernie picked this article because he likes um, acronyms of the yes, titles. Yes. And this is the SALTED trial. <laughs> right? So it's saline against lactated ringers or plasma light in the emergency department. So right. I, it's like, yeah, they picked SALTED first and then fit some words. In <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that's probably right. true. Came to them in a dream. <laughs> so, so, so this is by self at all from the SALTED investigators um, in the New England Journal, again, recently, March of 2018. It was from Vanderbilt University. This was actually part of two trials. There was actually a SMART trial, which we could sort of touch on, too. Um, but they wanted to investigate the clinical effects of balanced crystalloids versus saline for the routine intravenous fluid therapy, which is easy for you to say, not mm. for me, obviously, in the emergency department among non-critically ill adults. So this was a single center study. It was unblinded. It was a multiple crossover trial. So they, they, they did it over a 16-month period. Right. And they took people who were 18 or older, if you got at least 500 mLs of fluid in the ED and you were admitted outside of an ICU, you got into this trial right, right. here. And depending on the month, they either used saline or they used a balanced crystalloid, and their two choices were lactated ringers or plasmolite A. Now, when you go and look at this, it's something like 90 95% of it was lactated ringers. Right. So they basically used lactated ringers. Right. Um, they looked at you know a whole bunch of things. They had some contraindications and stuff. Um, their primary outcome was hospital-free days, so how quickly, basically, you got out of the hospital. They had some secondary outcomes major adverse kidney events, AKA, or in hospital deaths, and things like that. And they, you know, they did a power analysis, and they, they got basically the number of patients they needed, and they, for you statistical geeks out there, they actually adjusted their p-values for interim analyses and multiple comparisons. I know I just put very people good, to sleep. Very good. I know I just put people to sleep with that, with <laughs> yeah, that one. Good. But in any case, their study sample had over 13,000 people. 
The baseline characteristics were similar. Um, each group got about a liter of fluids or so. Um, most of them got the assigned crystalloids they were supposed to get, so like 88%. And after the treatment, they found that the, the balanced crystalloid group had less hyperchloremia and less acidemia than the saline group that persisted, persisted several days into the hospitalization. So I, I will leave it to you, Rich, to explain the, because um, I know this is one of your ballywicks, um, <laughs> um, why that is. But in any case, the, the, the bottom line is there was no difference in the number of hospital-free days in each group. And it didn't change when they tried to evaluate various subgroups. The one thing they did come up with was that there was a lower incidence of major adverse kidney events in the balanced crystalloid um, group. However, this was a, you know, a composite endpoint. Mm -hmm. And it had three different endpoints. And none of the subgroups individually were statistically significant. But the composite endpoint was. And that's a whole problem that we can talk about. Well, especially when they set their power to, what was it? Um, 14,000. 14,000 uh, patients required to find their, they thought that for them, something significant would see a difference in a half a hospital day, right? Right. They, they thought if there was some difference between these two groups, we would need 14,000 patients to find that. And they had uh, how many? They had 13. Just about there, right? 13,300. So started with about 20, excluded 20,000, yes. Uh, yeah, almost 20,000, excluded a bunch, got down to 13. So didn't even, didn't even find a half a day impact right. in, in right. things. And that's why my, um, my feeling is that if you're, going to use, um, if you're going to use saline and resuscitate patients, then you really need to be aware of the acidemia that it, that, you know, it creates and the effects that the chloride ions have on the patient vis-a-vis, -vis, um, you know, lactated ringers, which is uh, mostly what we end up using. Although in the DKA patients, we do end up using, uh, in the MICU, you'll see them throwing plasma light uh, yeah. at the patient. So um, I think you just need to know the effect and appreciate it. And so when your DKA patient is mysteriously more acidemic, after you've read article, whatchamacall, and uh, what was that article that, you know, you've given them four liters trying to get that sugar right. down, you're like, ah! Where did this acidosis come from? It's like, well, you just gave gave them four bags of it, <laughs> right? To me, that's that's at the bedside. To me, that's the teaching point. I I I, I don't try to uh, argue one way or the other for LR or uh, saline. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just important to know, you know, what what you're giving and what the effect of what you're giving, uh, you know, can be, and, and to know that difference. And like Ed was mentioning earlier, you know, you're talking about outcomes. Is this a patient-centered outcome? Not really. Uh, you know, you're talking the hospital-free days could be, but could be, yeah, they didn't right. find a difference there. Right. So these secondary outcomes of uh, a little bit of an increased, you know, renal dysfunction, not really going to be patient-centered, you know, their electrolyte right. problems. You're, you're, so. chasing, you're chasing numbers that right, the patient right. so doesn't how, care what yeah. their serum sodium is. They just want to get out of the hospital. Exactly. And they all get out of the hospital at the same time. So Now, what I did not do, um, uh, dive deep enough to uh, look at, I wonder if you guys did, was whether, because it's my feeling that, uh, basically, uh, once you know a liter or less, probably real. If you know, if this had no impact, a liter or less, I don't think your choices matter. When you're doing big fluid resuscitations, that's when I think you really need to get into it. I don't know if they found that in the, uh, the. I think it was an average of a liter that everybody got, right, right, right. Um, but I don't know that they found a, an association with more fluid and greater effects. Yeah, I don't think they did that because they they did mention that you know 
one of the sort of areas for further study might be to um, look at different subgroups of patients. So maybe if you come in, you've already got some renal failure. Maybe lactated ringers would be better than saline. But if you or I come in who suppose have normal creatinines and we just give a liter of saline, it's probably not going to matter that much. Right. Yeah, the numbers go a little wacky, but then they recorrect, and yeah. it doesn't really affect the patient. Exactly. Your kidneys seem to fix themselves, right? So straighten out your own electrolytes. But that's what they did say. They said if your chloride was greater than 110, <laughs> creatinine greater than 1.5 at baseline, then you may do a little bit better with LR. Than with LR. Than okay, yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting stuff. I look forward to what everybody thinks on uh, at thir- uh, on Thursday, Thursday at Journal Club. And thanks for joining us, Ed and All Ernie. Right. All right. Our court of program directors. <laughs> and, and, and before we leave, we should say congratulations to Laura. Oh, yes. She had the baby. She had her baby. Yes. Laura, if congratulations. 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 We know you won't be there, but you'll be there in spirit. And uh, Quentin. Quentin, yes. We, 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 another future ER doc is born. Oh, yes, yeah. Match, uh, we'll get him uh, going early on the match list. 2000. <laughs> no, I can't, whatever. I can't add that. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, and bye for now. All right, bye.